0: Bridge kids, thank you uh, for worshiping with us. You are dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 6 as we continue our series in the gospel of Luke. It seems like keeping up with the news these days is a pretty much a part-time job and I was just uh, reminded of the impact of uh, One Godly Life when uh, Billy Graham died and the amazing amount of information that The press has brought forth about his life and the impact he's had on all kinds of people. And um, he's going to be a legend. He is a legend. And it's amazing how many different, uh, how broad across the Christian spectrum he has impacted our world. Just a humble man, a godly man and one who can communicate the gospel well. I think I heard him, and he came to, uh, when, when I was growing up, I used to hear the radio, and I would hear him preaching, and I didn't appreciate what I heard, and I didn't like his southern accent back in those days. Then when I came to faith uh, in Christ, my attitude changed a little bit toward what Billy Graham was doing and the impact he was having on the world and then just year after year after year of his faithfulness has had such an impact. So today we are in Luke chapter 6, the few of us who are here today and uh, sometimes Christians invent, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, they invent some unusual rules For example, when I started dating Sue back in high school, her family had some rules that I did not know about. For example, she was not allowed to go to movies on Sunday night, or on Sunday, period. She was not allowed to go roller skating on Sunday. And, of course, smoking and drinking were sins, and pierced ears were prohibited. Now, eventually those rules began to loosen up because I took Sue to her first movie on Sunday night and it was The Sound of Music and her parents approved. When we moved to Dallas, Texas for me to go to seminary, we decided to have our daughter Tina attend a Christian school. And, of course, that school had some strict rules. One of those rules about were about dress and and. Girls were required to wear dresses or skirt, and they must come down to the knee. I don't know if it was below the knee or right at the knee. Now, when she started school, we were very careful that, and of course, longer skirts and dresses were popular back then too. And uh, so we were very careful that she dressed according to the dress code. However, our oldest daughter, Tina, grew very fast. And it wasn't long before she actually got sent home from school because her dress was an inch above her knee. So we, we fixed that right away. Um, in my first role as a pastor, I remember meeting a young couple from North Carolina. They had just moved to the Des Moines area. And um, they had come from a very rural oriented church and a very rural-oriented culture, which you know, I really hadn't heard of, anything as serious as it was that they described it. They described a whole lot of details. but here's one. On one occasion, the, this young mother went to the grocery store during the week just to buy some groceries, and she had small kids, so she took her kids, and there she's shopping, but she wore. Bermuda shorts, I may have to explain what Bermuda shorts are, but they were shorts that went down to the knee, one of the deacon's wives approached her and scolded her publicly at the store about wearing shorts to the store out in public. Um... When I became a pastor in Stoughton, we learned that some of our people in our church had strong views about certain things. For example, we learned that you do not bring a card table to church. Okay? You could bring a game table, but not a card table. They may look the same, (laughs) but you do not have a card table. We also... um, discovered that playing cards, you know, deck of 52, are taboo. They are off limits. And the way we, one of the ways we found out is that when we took our four-year-old son to church on Wednesday night, it was the Wednesday night prayer service, and he was the only, like, our two kids were the only kids there. And, uh, and because it was a bunch of senior saints at this service. And our four-year-old son just happened to bring a deck of cards. Nobody noticed that, and pretty soon they're spread out all over the pew, and there are some nice ladies sitting right behind Sue, and I was up front, you know, and there my son is, and Sue has to rescue the cards, and uh, fortunately not much was said, but we knew that having cards at church was not appreciated. You know, here our kid is at church, you know, and... Uh, as our church began to grow, we hoped to make our worship services a little more contemporary. Some of our people only wanted to use hymnals in worship, and they only wanted to be accompanied by the church organ or the church piano. Okay? And that's, that's great. That's personal taste. There's nothing wrong with enjoying that music. And yet, there was, we had a lot of younger families, and we were really anxious to bring in a drum set and guitars. And, you know, drum sets, drums were from the devil, according to some of our people, and they didn't appreciate guitars either. That was a long transition, by the way, but um, it turned out to be a good transition over time as we sought to honor people. Some people sort of, the danger is, this one we Christians view that our way is the only way or it is absolutely the best way and everybody else should adopt or adapt to our way. Another one of those is there are some people who believe there's only one correct version of the Bible and it is the best and it's the one that everybody should use. And It happens to be there are many uh, good versions, many good English versions of the Bible that we have today and not all of them were um, written in 1611 sometimes Christians with good intentions create rules that are not in the Bible it may be because of their own personal conscience it may be uh, a desire to do the right thing it may be to please other people and that happens sometimes they, they, people often choose rules that make them comfortable. And there's a real danger when Christians impose their rules on others as if it were one of God's rules. I'm going to make a distinction here. Adding rules to God's rules becomes legalistic. Living with a system of rules that are added to God's rules is legalism. Jesus confronted legalistic religious leaders quite often in his public ministry. Legalistic people have a tendency to view themselves, here's a big danger, they have a tendency to view themselves as superior, as if I have the right way, I have the right understanding, and you don't. And it's my job to offer you the correction that you need, okay? And they have a tendency to view themselves as superior. Instead of being humble, they are often full of pride. They tend to be critical of others who don't follow their rules. They tend to be judgmental. And we find this in Luke chapter 6. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 5. So please follow in your scripture, in your smartphone or the smartest phone that you have, whatever works. Verse 1, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, I, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so uh, in verses one through five, we have this legal problem about harvesting. It's about harvesting grain. And we see the situation right off in verse one. Jesus was going through grain fields, and his disciples. Just began to take the grain in their hands and rub them in their hands, and then they just ate a few bites, and um, that is going to create a problem. Now you know, we might say, well, "What is it? Why are they walking through a grain field?" Well, Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 25 permits this. This was one of the ways that God provided welfare in the Old Testament. He provided food for the poor. And the owners of the land were to make room and allow poor people to come in. And one could come in and pick grain with their hand. They were not allowed to go into your neighbor's property with a sickle. That was wrong. But you could come in and eat if you needed to, Just by using your hands There's a question from the religious leaders Verse 2 Some of the Pharisees ask Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath Now the Pharisees have their rules They have the Old Testament There were 613 commands That's quite a few But they had rules on top of those rules On top of God's rules and um, and they had a lot of rules about the Sabbath Uh, in the Mishnah which is the oral tradition of the Old Testament it's what the rabbis got together and and it was how they applied the scripture and so it was passed from generation to generation Now the Mishnah then is the written version of the oral version it eventually was written down and, and they had rules They had 39 classes of work violations, and every one of those classes had a whole set of of rules. So it's a pretty complicated system, and those aren't necessarily in the Bible, but that was their attempt, and their desire was to protect what God said. We want to make sure that nobody messes up on this, and so we're going to add these things to protect God's commandments, and so that people are safe. Well, they had, some of them had some pretty good intentions. Um, for example, some of them get to be kind of silly. They decided when it comes to sewing garments, it's okay to do one stitch on the Sabbath, but two stitches is work. That, that would be a sin. It's okay to tear one stitch, but you can't tear two. Um, they called... Um, walking, they, they would not allow walking on the grass on the Sabbath for the danger that one might pick up grass seed in their sandal and transport it and it would get planted. Don't do that. They also did not permit spitting on the Sabbath for danger that you might water the the, the grass or whatever. And so they had rules like this. Um... One of those rules included picking grain and rubbing it with their fingers like the disciples were doing and they called that threshing. It's a sin, okay? Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11 reminds us what the Sabbath was all about. This is God instructing through Moses, remember the Sabbath day Sabbath day being Saturday, the sixth day of the week. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, making it set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. Next slide. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that's that's the command. And it's the leaders who have added all the other rules about the Sabbath. And that's all we have pretty much about the Sabbath. The main main idea. So... uh, one of the things we see here is that God designed the Sabbath day at the time of creation. And that's pretty significant. Anything goes back to the created order, the way God, for example, we talk a lot today about how God made male and female and how important that is in the created order. The Sabbath was created in the beginning. And it's a part of the created order. God's intention was that man work six days. And then pause and rest. And that would be a time to disengage from the busyness of life and to have some time for God in your life to reflect and to refocus and to be refreshed so that you'll be ready to go back to work. Now, all through the history of the Old Testament, God's people were challenged with this. To set aside a day to rest is a great act of faith. Can I really accomplish my schedule, my life, if I set aside a day and rest? To follow God's principles, it's an act of faith to do that. You know, some people think, well, I can make more money if I work seven days. I can have a bigger income, a bigger harvest. And God says, I want you to set aside a day to rest. So... The Pharisees have criticized Jesus' disciples for threshing on the Sabbath. Here's the response of Jesus to the Pharisees. Uh, Verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered them, have you never read? Now, Jesus knew they had read. Jesus knew that they they knew this story very well. They could have taught the story. But one of the things that Jesus is suggesting here is they have missed the bigger implications of Scripture. It's easy to come up with rules, but what are the principles in the Scriptures about who God is and why God does what He wants and why He wants us to do certain things? So he tells this story. Have you never read what David did? Now, who's David? Well, if you remember, David is this great king of the past, and he was a writer of some of the Psalms, and he's like a big hero to these Pharisees, okay? Now, this is what David did. Remember, David is the one who would have a descendant that would reign on the throne forever, the Messiah, okay? So, here's what David did. He entered the house of God. Sounds like the temple, but it's not. It's the tabernacle, that that temporary, movable uh, place uh, place where um, people would meet, could meet with God and where sacrifices were made, but it was movable because they hadn't settled yet for Jerusalem and the temple. He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests. That's the law. That's the rules. Those were God's rules. And he gave some to his companions, David's friends. There. It was an emergency. And so, um, the rules were, the priests were allowed inside the holy place, not the average person, not the average Jewish person. And inside this holy place, on every Sabbath day, there was to be a table set, a special table. And on that table, every Sabbath day was a a fresh, um, 12 loaves of fresh bread, every Sabbath. And those were... uh, a symbol of the relationship that Israel had with God. The 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel and that God was in relationship. They had fellowship and God's people were able to meet with God and this bread was a picture because bread is like intimate. It's about you sit down with a meal with somebody and God would sit down with a meal with his people and that bread signified that and so that bread was to sit there for a week and after one week the new bread came and the old bread went to the priests and they got to eat it. Seven days old. But only the priests could eat it. Nobody else. They, couldn't, they didn't throw it out. This was important. And they, the priests are the ones that got to eat it. But on this occasion, David comes in and he's allowed to eat the bread. The high priest of the day allowed him to eat the bread. God never scolded David, never brought this up. It was a matter of life. It was a need. It was an urgency. And it was allowed above this law, the ceremonial law of the bread. And only Jesus can give authority to this. And one of the things that shows that there are some higher principles at times when it comes to the rules that God has given. In Mark two twenty seven, um, then he said to them, Jesus said, and this is uh, the same incident recorded by Mark. This is uh, new information that Luke didn't record. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, that's pretty interesting The Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. The Sabbath was made for the good of man. That man should stop and rest is good because man does not always know he should stop. And he does not always know when to rest. And this was for all of Israel. And it was good. That's why God gave it. The Sabbath was made for man. But man was not made for the Sabbath. It wasn't to destroy man. It wasn't to hurt man. It wasn't to be destructive to man. It wasn't to enable a man to starve to death because it's a Sabbath. It was made for man. It's good. It had a purpose. And then we have the announcement of Jesus um, in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you just read that. Oh, okay, that's nice. This was a really powerful statement to the religious leaders of Israel. The Son of Man. Now, this is a term that Jesus has already identified himself with. And the Son of Man, if you want to read Daniel seven thirteen and 14, just in your extra reading time, that's a reference to God in the Old Testament. And Jesus called himself the son of man. It was a, it was a term that he used most often in de- describing himself and speaking of himself, the son of man. And he said the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? And he's proclaiming his authority over the Sabbath day. Now let's think about this a minute. Who is Jesus. What happened in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then you go to John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you go on to verse 3, and we find out that everything that was made was made through Him. And of course, if you look at Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, it's very clear that Jesus Christ is the Creator God. He was present at Genesis 1-1. He was the one who created the seventh day, the day of rest. He indeed is the Lord of the Sabbath and of every day. So in the first encounter about the Sabbath day, Jesus shows higher principles about the Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath is not about just keeping a bunch of do's and don'ts. Man's rules can be stifling sometimes without benefit. God's, God's plan was for people to have rest and to be replenished. That's why he designed the Sabbath. In verses 6 through 11, we see a problem about healing and uh We see in verses 6 and 7, we see on another uh, Sabbath. So, different occasion, not the same day. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue, and he was teaching, and a man was there whose hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. This is the setup, okay? The situation... Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. This was what people did on the Sabbath. They went to the synagogue. Synagogue was a Jewish gathering place, a place of prayer, a place of reading of the Word of God out loud, and then a place where the Word of God was discussed and helped to apply to people's lives. And so on this particular occasion, there's a man there, and he is paralyzed in the right hand. It's atrophied. And um, some writers think that maybe he was planted there by the Pharisees. The Scripture doesn't tell us whether he was planted or not. Whatever the case, he's there. And whatever the case is, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which, who are the scribes, were intentionally trying to find something wrong with what Jesus was doing. They, they wanted to uh, prove his failure publicly. They wanted to show that he was not following Scripture or traditions. They wanted to... Uh, and so, here's an interesting thing. They want to see if Jesus will heal this man on the Sabbath... They, it's interesting, they already know he can heal. And they already know his character. He's likely going to want to do this. And so they're just watching for his failure. We see the response of Jesus in verse 8. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Jesus now is going to be Proactive. He's not just going to sit back. He's going to do something here. He instructs the man to stand up in front of everyone. And this man is going to be on display. Could have been kind of embarrassing. And then Jesus offers in verse 9 the test question. Because he has a point to make. Then Jesus said to them, "Now, How would you answer this? If he, Jesus asked you this. He said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do? To do good or to do evil? And then he said, to save life or to destroy it? Now here's the deal for the Pharisees. They have a conundrum. This is a big problem for them because they have so many rules that they are backed in a corner they don't want to do evil, but they can't do good. And even a child in the audience could have answered Jesus' question. They knew, well, you do good on the Sabbath. And you, and you want to save life on the Sabbath. A child could have answered that. But the Pharisees have created a system that they don't have an answer for. And the point is, there are higher principles to consider God doesn't stop doing good just because it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to be good for man, not to prolong suffering. In John chapter 5, on a different occasion, Jesus said this when he was criticized on the Sabbath. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Next slide. In his defense... The the, Jesus said to them, "My Father is always at His work, to this very day, and I too am working." Now think about what Jesus said: "My Father works on the Sabbath, and I too am working on the Sabbath." So there is a sense that God is working, God is doing good on the Sabbath, and Jesus is doing good on the Sabbath. And yes, Jesus practiced rest. He practiced the Sabbath. He went to synagogue. He went for prayer. He went for scripture. He went to learn or to teach. And he followed the Old Testament practices of, you know, in the Old Testament, they prepared ahead of time for Sabbath. You had to do a little extra work so that you didn't have to do all the work on the Sabbath. So they prepared food ahead of time just one day and this is really an act of faith to have a plan to be able to set aside a day and slow down we see the healing in verse 10 he looked around at them all and they said and then said to the man stretch out your hand he did so and his hand was completely restored so in front of everyone, in front of the Pharisees who are criticizing him for even wanting to heal someone on the Sabbath, he just has the man stand up, has the man reach out his hand, and he heals him instantaneously and totally. And that's how Jesus did it, instantaneously, and it was a total healing. This was a miracle. God uh, supernaturally encountered uh, Laws of nature and brought change for good. And one of the things I just want to remind us of as we work through the book of Luke, miracles have a purpose to authenticate the messenger and the message. Who is this? This is Messiah. He brings good news, it's for all people. Pay attention, Israel. You're missing out. And um, what about the guy here? What if Jesus told you to stand up in this tense situation? What if, you're, what, if you're, what if the Pharisees are, what if it's like your uncle or something? I don't know. But this guy, he stands up. He, it's as simple as he did what Jesus told him to do. He said, reach out his hand. Did he believe Took an act of faith to do it. He did what Jesus asked him to do, and then Jesus did what He intended to do, and that was to heal him. So I just um, let's look at verse eleven. Then the angry reaction. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Huh? Interesting response. A man gets healed, right on the spot. It's good. I ought to be praised to God. And they are furious. They, they do not have an answer for Jesus. They don't know how they're going to charge Jesus. Um, it, they're kind of befuddled. In their view, Jesus has violated the tradition of the Mishnah. And um, he is misleading people. I, I just want to have a question for you. Do you have time for Sabbath rest? I'm not going to be legalistic about this in any way. I just want to ask you, do you have time for Sabbath rest? Do you make time to rest? Do you rest from work? Are you are you too busy? Because it's about really it's about self-leadership. You get you get to choose your schedule. And I know that we have everybody has jobs and responsibilities, but how do you do you make space so that you can rest? Do you make space so that you have time somewhere to focus on your relationship with God, to reflect? And I'm not, I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you how to do this. I'm just saying, do you need to rest? God designed rest into creation for our good, okay? That's all I'm going to say. Uh, We come to the last section in um, verses 12 through 16, and we have a call to leadership, a call to leadership. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, And John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alpha, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the the traitor. So let's just talk about this. First of all, Jesus prepares for the decision he's going to make. He prepares. He went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. So this is sometime later. Jesus gets away from people. and We see this in the Gospels. He has a habit of getting alone by himself to be with his Father. And, uh, you know, this is kind of amazing when you know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is God. He's certainly equal with the Father. And yet... Jesus in his humanity has this practice of prayer and that's where he really deeply connects with his father and that's where he processes what's happening in his life on a regular basis on a daily basis he processes his responsibilities and his plans He's able to bring his life in alignment to God when he takes the time to be alone. Here, he needs to make a major decision. He needs to choose a set of leaders that he will pass his baton to them when he goes to heaven. And so he's going to pick 12. Now, what we sometimes forget is there was a lot of disciples already. There were people whose lives had been changed, people who had been healed, people who were in the crowds where Jesus taught, people following. There were a lot of disciples from, to choose from. And he chose 12. What does that mean? Some of them weren't chosen. Didn't mean they weren't going to heaven. Didn't mean they, were going, they weren't children of God. It just means they weren't going to be apostles. What if you were one of those people and he didn't choose you? Does that make Jesus a favorite? He's playing favorites. I would just take it as the sovereign son of God. It's his choice. And he did exactly that. He announces his decision in verses 13 through 16. And he did when the morning came. He called his disciples, larger group, and he just, he's going to designate just 12. Out of the the roll call here. And um, he designates apostles. Disciples are learners and followers. Apostles have a slightly different focus. An apostle is one who is sent with authority. In this case, Jesus will send these 12 with his authority. And they will represent Him. And they will be ambassadors for Him. And they will speak the very words of God for Him. Because those words haven't been written yet. And some of them will write Scripture. Write it down. But these guys are going to be teachers and teaching things about truth and Christianity that were not yet written down. And um, let's just walk through... um, First, we have Simon, who was uh, called Peter, and just we just need to be clear. And Simon, Peter, will become the leader of the group, and he is the one, his name is most mentioned in the Gospels. And Jesus has a lot of fun with him, and and Peter makes some silly mistakes, which we all can identify with, and gives us hope, but he's the leader of all of them, and then there's there's um, Andrew, and that's Simon Peter's brother, and they were in a fishing business together. And we don't know much about Andrew after this other than uh, outside of what Scripture... And I can trust uh, some of tradition about the disciples, but for, for in the Scripture, we don't have much information. There were James and John who were brothers. They were also sons of Zebedee, and they were fishing partners with Peter and Andrew, and we know that. We also know that Jesus spent extra time with Peter, James, and John. He took three of his leaders who were leading other apostles or disciples, and he spent extra time with them. Uh, James will be the first apostle to die for his faith in Acts chapter 12. He's going to be executed by Herod in Acts chapter 12 because he's a follower of Christ. It's not the same James that wrote the book of James. John will outlive all of them, and he will write the gospel of John, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and the book of the Revelation. Then there is Philip. We don't know a lot about Philip, but he will be mentioned in the book of Acts, and Philip will be an evangelist. There's Bartholomew, who may also be the same as Nathaniel, and little is known about him. Matthew, also called Levi, is the tax collector, and he's going to write the Gospel of Matthew. Then there's Thomas the doubter, the doubting Thomas, and that's kind of what we know him for, was that one event in John chapter 20 when he doesn't think that Jesus has risen from the dead. He says, unless I touch, I want to get my hands all over this stuff. And then I'll know it's Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so Jesus shows up and Thomas goes, my Lord and my God, and he hits the floor. You know, he does not touch anything. He believes. He's a, in philosophy we call him a British empiricist. Got to have the facts, got to have the facts. James, the son of Alphas, we all, we know mo- almost nothing about him. He's not the same James as John's brother. Then there was Simon, there are two Simons then, who was called the Zealot. So think about this. Simon, We you don't think about this often, but he was a political extremist. He was a radical and he was for overthrowing anybody to get what he wanted accomplished. You know, if it's overthrowing the government or overthrowing the priesthood, whatever it is, To make things right, we'll do it. And then he encounters Jesus, and his life is changed, and he's no longer an extremist. And he's no longer ready to do violence for the sake of his cause. But he's called the zealot. Judas, the son of James, also called Thaddeus. We don't know much about him. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the traitor, and probably as much is known about him as uh, anybody less than Jesus In the New Testament, Judas the traitor, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He had Jesus arrested, and then he felt so bad that he hung himself. Why in the world did Jesus pray all night and pick Judas? That's really a good question. I sort of think he did it for us. I sort of think he did it to let us know that there can be people that hang out with you all the time that don't really get it. I don't think, I mean, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that one of those guys was going to be a, was going to betray him, and he knew it, and it it just had to be played out, and then Matthias will take Judas's place. Here's a question: How do you make major decisions? Jesus prayed all night. How do you make major decisions? Do you seek out advice? Wisdom comes with the abundance of counselors. Do you pray? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. How do you make major decisions? What role does prayer have in your decision making? Will you pray all night for a major decision? Would you pray a half day, four hours for a major decision? Would you pray one hour for a major decision? How do you make major decisions okay let's talk about some lessons We've got five number one sometimes we put them in your program because we talk too fast okay we put them in your program except you got to fill in the blank sometimes people focused on truth become legalistic sometimes people focused on truth become legalistic how could that happen you focus on truth and you become legalistic so that's what happened to the teachers of the law. Originally, they had good intentions. They loved the law. They loved to study Scripture. And they did want to please God. They did want to do right, but they got off course from God's intent. It, was all, it became more about what's right and what's wrong. And if give me a list, and I'll keep the list, rather than the heart with God. And they didn't always understand the deeper intentions of of Scripture. And I remember studying the Bible in seminary, and I love to study the Bible, and I remember gaining so much knowledge, and the more I learned, the more I saw how to apply this and make decisions, at least I thought were good, and it was really easy to start making rules. This is how it should be done. This would be right. This is what Christians should do. And then it was really easy to start looking at other Christians and saying, hey, they're not doing this. They're not right. I am. They're not. And, of course, there's a big danger of the second one here. Uh, I had some... We had structure in our home, especially with our first child. As our other children came along, the structure became... We became a little more gracious. Here's the deal. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was all about the truth, but he was all about grace, and he knew how to balance them. For example, when it came to the Pharisees, he was all about the truth. When it came to the woman at the well, he didn't change truth, but, oh, he was gracious. When it came to the woman caught in adultery, he didn't nail her with 26 verses from the Old Testament. He was gracious. He knew, and he wants us to be gracious and truthful. Well, I just would say on my first child... I focused more on truth than I did on grace. And then, as my other two kids came along, I began to see more about grace, which probably was a bit healthier. My intentions were good. I was trying to be the best dad I could. But I had a lot growing to do. Secondly, strict rule keepers have a tendency to become prideful, like the Pharisees, who became critical of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, and they are criticizing him because they are focused on minutia rules that they have created, and they have not studied the deeper implications of Scripture. They measured people by their rules. Which caused them to be critical and they saw other people as inferior and they became very prideful. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Third uh, lesson, obedience to God is always the priority over obedience to humans. Jesus obeyed God, not every rule created by the Pharisees or the tradition of the Mishnah. Uh, James chapter 2 verse 8 says that if you really keep the royal law, the royal law um, is the term that comes after describing what Jesus taught. It's a royal law because Jesus is the king. And this The command comes from the Old Testament. Jesus taught the greatest commandment is to love God and the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is one of the best ways to process how to treat people. And um, whether it's a Sabbath day, whether it's uh, rules, Make sure that you're loving your neighbor as yourself. Treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated. Now, we're not talking about violating Scripture. We're not talking about freedom to sin. We're talking about the need to love. I like James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Uh, James says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now get this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a principle of Scripture that's very important. If there is a tension between justice and mercy, or judgment and mercy, fudge toward mercy. That's a principle in Scripture. Now, God can handle all the judgment and justice. We have to be very careful about judging other people, whether they have different music or whether they wear different clothing, whether, whatever choices they make about their life. Be careful. Obedience to God is always a priority over obedience to humans. Number four, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and of every day and in all situations. I hope that's really obvious. He's Lord of all. My question is, Jesus, your Lord? Not just your Savior, not just that you trusted Him to pay the penalty for your sins and you know you're forgiven and you know you're going to heaven, but is He Lord? That's the idea that He's the Master, I'm the servant. So when he gives instructions, my job is to follow. My job is to serve him. Is he Lord? Jesus wants uh, He He wants to be Lord of our lives. It's not like He wants us to keep a bunch of rules. He wants us to follow Him one day at a time. Uh, and uh, the last one, number five. When God gives a command, we must respond if we expect God to work in us. When God gives us a command, we must respond. It's easy to overlook the paralyzed man in the story. It wasn't difficult, but he had to respond. Jesus gave instructions stand up. And he did. Hold out your hand. And he did. What did Jesus do? He acted. He healed him. And Philippians 2:12 through 13 is a good reminder for me. You've probably heard me use it several times, but think about it. Paul writes, "Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, key, key concept: obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And here it is: Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not work for your salvation. Everybody knows that, right? Salvation is not by works. But salvation is a gift that God has given us, and it's in us. It includes the Holy Spirit. It includes our identity. It's in us. And he's saying, work it out. Live it out. Live so that it comes out on a daily basis. Work it out with fear and trembling, with humility. Why? For it is God who is at work in you. God is in you and He's working. And when you work out your salvation, He is working in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. If you engage with God, He will engage with you. If you sit back in a passive mode, expect God to sit back in a passive mode. And oftentimes we pray when we want something or we need something, but we're just letting everything else go by. We just want God to know what we want, and he's told us what he wants. The key uh, key is obedience. And uh, I was just reminded in discussions with my wife, as our Thursday Women's Growth Group just learned, here's a quote from Thursday, obedience is not just a key for hearing God's voice we could have the ladies answer here obedience is the key is the key for hearing god's voice likewise obedience is the key for god working in us okay let's stand and let's pray Thank you, Father, for uh, the Gospel of Luke and just the opportunity to look at the life of Jesus and to learn from him and to see how he dealt with uh, confrontation and how he handled the Scriptures and to see how he made major decisions. God, may we uh, be people who, just like the man who was paralyzed When Jesus gives us simple instructions, we just step up and we obey. Help us to grow our hearts to be people of your word, people who follow one day at a time. May we not focus on just the do's and the don'ts, but we follow rules because we want to follow you. Thank you that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name, amen.